Let me tell you something about my friend Charlotte. Charlotte uh, was a member of our board here. She was a Christian counselor for 40 years, one of the wisest people I know. She and her husband moved to Indiana, but she's got a lot to say. For some of us that are about the same age and have adult children who don't always do what we would like for them to do, or maybe aren't walking with the Lord, she's going to be speaking into that. So you ladies might thoroughly enjoy that. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 11. We're going back to the chapter by chapter study, Revelation chapter 11. And Lord, as we open the word, we ask that you would teach us today, because this is really, really important things we're going to read. And it's from your heart, in Jesus' name, everyone said amen. <clears throat> Hold your Bibles up. Let's see if you got your Bibles. Excellent. Bibles are good. Now, uh, I just want to mention, I want to help you with a little bit of a focus thing. <clears throat> I want you to understand this passage. You may have never heard a sermon on this. You may have never even read about it. It's very important, and it's coming to our earth, and we're getting closer and closer and closer to this. And so I want you to not daydream. And what we're going to read in chapter 11 is in the center of God's plan. Okay, now let me read the first 14 verses. And I'm reading out of the English Standard Version today. Verse 11, verse 1, chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, John says. And I was told, rise up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it has been given to the nations. They will trample, everyone say trample, the holy city of Jerusalem for 42 months. Now, I am not claiming that my perceptions in this passage are going to be completely accurate. Nobody's is completely accurate. There's a lot of mystery here. A lot of dates I cannot set. But apparently, Jerusalem will be, Israel will be occupied. And there will be an occupying army in Jerusalem during this time. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, the Hebrew calendar is different from ours. We have 365 days in a year. They count theirs, I believe it's 360. They use a lunar calendar. So if you take 360, these numbers match perfectly. Now, these are the two olive trees. Everyone say olive trees. And two lampstands, say two lampstands, that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out of their mouth and consumes their foes. 
If anyone, this is repeated for significance, if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to die. Look what else they have. They have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Verse 7. And when they have finished, everyone say finished. Underline that in your Bible. When they have finished their testimony, the beast, this is the first time he is mentioned in Revelation. And the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. That symbolically is called Sodom and called Egypt. Where their Lord was crucified, so we know where the city is. What's the name of the city? I'm sorry, what's the name of the city? Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and the tribes and the languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and even foolishly exchange presents like happy Dead prophets day. Come to my party. Because the two prophets have been a torment to them who dwell on the earth. And after the three and a half days, breath of life from God enters them and they stand on their feet. And great fear will fall on all those who saw this. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Everyone say that, please. Come up here. Let's try it together. Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. That's the second time it's mentioned. Very important. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and the tent of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in that earthquake and the rest were terrified And they gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is about to show up. Now, I, again, do not say that my thinking is correct. I'm going to miss some things on this. But I want you to wrestle with the scriptures. My job as a pastor is to say what the scripture says, possibly what it means, and what you can do with it. Does that make sense? And it's your job to wrestle with the scripture. Now, verse 1 opens up with this mysterious thing. This is first the first thing John is told to do other than write. He's told to measure the temple in Jerusalem. And this this temple has not even been built yet when he was told to do this. So he's doing it in the spirit realm. Uh, We say, well, what's the tribulation? The tribulation is the last seven years of this planet's history as we know it. Right before Jesus comes back. And the Antichrist comes to power and rules about, 
I don't know, three-fourths of this globe during that time. We see him mentioned for the first time. Now, I want you to understand how this fits. I want you to see this and go, oh, that makes sense. So let me explain some things. Let me explain the temples. There have been two temples in Jerusalem. The very first one took seven years to build. That's a long time. And David had it in his heart to build it, and he raised billions of dollars worth of materials to build it. But the Lord wouldn't let him build it and said his son Solomon built it. And there's the story of it in 2 Chronicles chapter 3. First temple. 400 years later, approximately after they built it, it was destroyed by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were the big boys in the world at the time. The greatest king that probably ever lived was Nebuchadnezzar the Great. And Judah was a vassal state. They had to pay taxes or tribute, and they stopped paying taxes. And three different times, Nebuchadnezzar sent armies against Israel and Judah and took the city three times. And they promised, we'll give you the tribute. And let me tell you why the Babylonians showed up. For one reason, idolatry. They were disobedient to the Lord. And the Lord said, I'll use other nations to discipline you if you don't obey me and walk with me. And the third time, it took Nebuchadnezzar two years to take Jerusalem. Think about this. Nobody coming in. No food coming in for two years. Can you think how horrible the city would be? And finally, they breached the wall. And Nebuchadnezzar was so upset with these stupid Jews for doing this. A lot of people died and a lot of people went into slavery. And practically, he raised the whole city. Think about the rubble from 911 and the World Trade Center. Fallen buildings, walls everywhere. So the Jews go off into captivity, off into Babylonia and Persia. After 70 years, because it would prophesy that the length of the exile would be 70 years. And so after the 70th year, the poor survivors walked back five, six hundred miles back to Jerusalem to try to rebuild the city. And the first thing they did was they tried to get the temple up so they could have temple worship. Let's keep moving forward. So that's the second temple. Herod the Great is king over Israel at the time installed by the Romans. He doesn't have a drop of Jewish blood. He does not love God. He is a pagan. He is a murdering thug. But he takes what was left of the temple and he redoes it. He renovates it. He expands it. He makes it beautiful. All this is during the time of Christ. And he did it for one reason. He wanted to please the religious Jews. That's the only reason he did this. And it became one of the most glorious, magnificent buildings in the history of all the world. This is a replica of it. This is what it would have looked like when Jesus went to the temple. Sadly, 
The last week of his life, Jesus prophesied that the temple and the city would be destroyed. The Jews would go back into captivity one more time. And he prophesied this in chapter 24 of Matthew, that not one stone would remain on top of another, specifically in the temple. It would be obliterated. Israel was already under occupation by the Romans. It wouldn't wouldn't be hard to figure out who would do this. 35 years after Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, the Romans indeed took a torch to the city, destroyed Herod's temple. A lot of people died again. So the second temple is now gone in 70 A.D. Are you following me? How many temples so far? Now, the island of Patmos, does anybody know where that is? That's in Lake Cumberland, just about an hour and a half from here. It's wonderful. It's a great place to go. Get a timeshare down there. Uh, Patmos is on my bucket list. I want to go there sometime. This is a map where it is in this, uh, right off the coast of Turkey, about 500 miles. And it's where John the Apostle, who wrote the book, book of Revelation, he was the only one that lived to be an old man. The rest of them were martyred, crucified, executed. But John lived to be an old man, and he wouldn't stop preaching the gospel. They tried to kill him a lot of times. They couldn't kill the guy. So finally they said to shut him up. We're going to exile him to this rock in the middle of the ocean where he can do no harm to us. And instead, he has a book of revelation given to him, which is what you have on your lap in approximately 95 AD. The odd thing about it is the temple has been gone for 25 years. So how's he going to measure it? Now, if you visit Jerusalem today, it is my favorite place in all the world to go to. It is a center of God's heart for the entire world. The Temple Mount, everyone say Temple Mount, is about 36 acres. Church of the Savior, we have about 11 acres on our property, so three times that is the size of this place. Now, Herod built this big platform, okay? the surrounding platform. So you go today, you see the platform, but there's, but there's no temple there because the Romans obliterated it. What is this place? That's Dollywood in Pigeon Forge. Um, that is the White House, and comparatively, it sits on about 18 and a half acres. If you go to Jerusalem today, it's not easy to get get up on the Temple Mount. The Islamic uh, police actually control it. There are Israeli troops up on it, but Jews can't hardly go up there and Christians can rarely go up there. You have two structures. They're impressive buildings. The first one is the Dome of the Rock. This will figure in prominently in the end times in the war that will eventually come. 
You see the gold leaf on top of that eight-sided building there. I've been around it, and I kind of think 25 years I got to go inside of it. Inside of it, there's kind of like a huge rock about half the size of this platform. And the Jews believe, and probably the Muslims, and I think they're probably right, is probably the location where Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice him. That's still part of the mountain range of Moriah. And it's where the Muslims feel that Muhammad rode on a black magnificent stallion into heaven and had a vision and returned. So it's a holy site to them. The other holy site is the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And that is a picture of it. All this is important for what's going to be happening in the future. Now, that's what, that's what the Temple Mount looks like right now. Now, I've given you some markers to show you where stuff is. You got the Dome of the Rock. How many of you see it? Do you see the Dome of the Rock? Okay, very good. This is on a third grade level. Point click right there. And then there's the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And for years, people thought for the third temple that John sees that will be built in the last days would have to be in the place of the Dome of the Rock. But actually, more accurately, it would be built right there. Why right there? Because this gate, you can see kind of a blockhouse with two kind of arches. That is called St. Stephen's Gate. That is called the Gold. That's where Stephen was taken outside the town to be executed. It's called the Golden Gate. And uh, it's where... Josephus said you could see the temple, Solomon's, uh, Herod's temple, by looking through the gate and the front doors are right there. So there is room for the third temple to be built. And it's my guess that Antichrist, during the tribulation, will broker a deal as a, quote, man of peace and get the Jews their temple built. It is, frankly, the most explosive site in the world. These are Muslim people praying during Ramadan, which is their holy 30 days. And you see Israeli troops marshaled with weapons to keep things from going crazy. I used to think the DMZ in South Korea was the most dangerous place because you got a million uh, North Korean troops on one side, and that crazy guy has nuclear weapons, and we have Americans and South Koreans on the other side. I've been there once, but I think this is much more explosive because it has spiritual implication. Now, the Western Wall, how many have heard of the Western Wall? Hold your hand up. The Western Wall is the holiest site for religious Jews. That's what it looks like. 
And when Christians like us go there on a tour, the men go on one side, the women go on the other side. Both of them have to have their head cover, covered. We usually wear a little cap over our head. What Christians do, Jews will pray there, but Christians have taken little slips of paper and write the names of their loved ones or prayer requests, roll them really tight, and put them into the cracks of this rock wall. And let me tell you what the bottom layers of those stones, to show you what an engineering feat is, let me show you the next picture. Jesus prophesied correctly that there'd be no stone left on the temple. But this is actually not the temple. This is a retaining wall around the 37 acres. And for a long time, this is as close the Jews could get to the Temple Mount. Okay, but some of the some of the limestone rocks at the bottom of this wall, some of them are sixty-five or seventy feet long. That's like from here to that double door, and they are like as tall as my head, six feet tall, and they're probably six to eight feet wide. And you can imagine the engineering. Gill of putting those mammoth stones in place. So it seems impossible for the Jews to ever put a temple back on the Temple Mount, even though they desperately want to. All this plays into the story. Now, on two occasions I've been to Israel, I've had the privilege to go to something called the Temple Institute. The Temple Institute is a Jewish organization, and it's not a tourist trap. They have one goal. They are rebuilding and making all the implements the sacred garments, the, the vessels, the musical instruments, everything needed for worship in the third temple. Look on the left there. You see the high priest's uh, robe and apparel. You see a Levite to the right. That is not a museum piece. That is the real thing that a high priest will wear one day when that temple is put back up. And so they're getting ready. They've raised hundreds of millions of dollars from Jews all over the globe to raise this money. Look at that. That is the Ark of the Covenant that will be put in there. Now, here's the term we don't throw around at all hardly, but I want you to know this term. If you're going to be a serious Christian, you should know this term, and it's the term diaspora. Say it with me, please, diaspora. Diaspora, look at the musical instruments that would have been used 4,000 years ago, and they've been recreated, silver trumpets, harps. Diaspora means... The dispersal. 
it means the scattering. Because in the covenant in Deuteronomy 28, the Lord said to his people, Hey, you're my people, I'm your God. But if you follow other gods, if you give over to idolatry, and I tell you over and over and over to leave these false gods, I will scatter you all over the world. And that's exactly what he did twice. So the term diaspora is very important because you in your lifetime have seen Jews come back from all over the globe to become citizens of this new nation, the nation of Israel, which means the clock, the prophetic clock is winding down, getting close to Christ's return. I think the reason John was told to measure the temple, the temple that wasn't even there, he could see it in the spirit realm, for was for this reason, because he didn't give us the dimensions. The Lord wanted him to show us that this is real. This is not Lord of the Rings. This is not Star Trek. This is really going to happen. Now, the the nations, the Gentiles' nations, apparently will occupy Jerusalem, the scripture says, plainly, for 42 months. 42 months is three and a half years. And in the book of Revelation, three and a half years is used five different times. It's repeated for emphasis. Okay, that is not the sermon. Can we get to the sermon? Let's do the second part. Two superstars for Jesus are going to come up on the scene, and they are called the two witnesses. Would you repeat that, please? The two witnesses. Now, point number A under this. We talked about 144,000 Jewish evangelists Some of my Jehovah's Witnesses friends think they are one of the 144,000. I have to disagree with them. The scripture says these are Jews from all 12 tribes. But apparently, they were mobilized to share the gospel with Gentiles. Now, I can't be wrong about this, but this is my speculation. Their mission was to the Gentiles of the world And that happened primarily during the first half of the tribulation. And possibly a billion people came to Christ through their ministry. The greatest evangelists that ever walked on the face of the earth were these 144,000. But as their ministry winds down, Why do you say winds down, Steve? I don't know, but they're not on the scene. My guess is most of them were martyred for their faith. As they leave the scene halfway approximately through the seven-year tribulation, two super evangelists Start preaching. And 
Here's my guess. I think their target audience is the Jews. Why would you say that? Because they're in Jerusalem. They're not in Atlanta. They're in Jerusalem where their ministry is. And I think it's during the second half of the tribulation. So you got seven years, three and a half. Then you got another three and a half. And they've appeared right in the middle. Now this is, this is interesting. The fact they are wearing particular clothing says something. What's your clothing? It's something called sackcloth. Everyone say sackcloth. It's very clear that this is what they're wearing. What is sackcloth? Well, we don't know anything about it today. It's kind of like burlap. It's rough clothing. Growing up on the farm, I grew up in South Carolina when my dad would get seeds from the oil company, whoever would deliver them. There are horse feed. Often it would come in these big 50-pound burlap bags that you'd have to cut the string at the top to get the, the, the horse feed out. It's rough clothing. Prophets, when they were repenting, kings when they were repenting, David when he was repenting would put on sackcloth and sometimes even throw ashes from the fireplace on their head to show, I am serious, I got to change. That's what this means. And my guess is they wear their regular clothing and they put this sackcloth over their regular clothing every single day. Why would they do this, Steve? Because they like brown? No. It's a visual message. People hear the message and people will see the message. It is a call to repentance, to change your ways. Now, when the prophet Jonah was sent to Nineveh, the capital of the Syrian empire, they were the biggest empire in the world, probably the most bloodthirsty people that ever lived. Jonah did not want to go. He hated them. He wanted them to burn and rot, and he would not go, and he jumped on a ship, and God had to go get him and deliver him back. And Jonah went through the capital city, and he preached. He didn't even give them an outline, which is, I can't believe that. He didn't give them a pretty PowerPoint with pretty pictures or tell history stories. He had a one-line sermon. Uh, Repent or turn around or sizzle. (laughs) And the city was so big, it took him three days to walk through it. And he was stunned. He got on a hill overlooking the capital city to watch God destroy them all because he hated them. Instead, the king, his military leaders, put on sackcloth, repented, and asked God for mercy. Someone say amen. Amen. The most unlikely people can realize they need to change. And so when they, you see, when they would see these men in sackcloth, you went, 
uh-oh. This is serious stuff. Now, when they show up, the fact that they minister for three and a half years preaching shows us that God still speaks because God still cares. And God's plan is always mercy if people will come for the mercy. If you don't come for the mercy, you're on your own before a holy God. But I want to forgive people. I want to love people. I want to help people. That's the heart of God. And this is the heart of God's mercy. These two super preachers showing up. And this is not in the text, but I just happen to think, well, why two witnesses for this reason? A number of times in the scriptures it says a testimony of how many? Two is confirmed. It was double the mercy, double the kindness, double the truth because there were two saying the same thing. Isn't that just like our Heavenly Father? He is so kind. He is so loving. He wants to forgive us. How many have ever been forgiven of great sins, hold your hand up by loving God. Okay, praise God. Your pastor would hold both hands and both feet if I could get them out there. I've been forgiven. Now, I'll show you how God works through the centuries. And now he will say the same thing over and over and over to make sure people know he loves them, to make sure he's holy, to make sure he cares and wants to help them. These guys are pictured hundreds of years before in the little tiny book of Zechariah chapter 4. Remember we talked about two temples, right? Two temples, right? Two temples. Hello, help me. Two temples? Two temples. Well, when these poor people came back from being in Persia, they had no money. They were beat down. They were like 10% of what they once were. And they wanted to get the temple back And they did the best they could building a temple in Jerusalem. And they got so discouraged at one time they just completely quit except there were two men. How many? Who said we can't quit. We're going to make it happen. Come on, let's get up. We can do this. Two men. And their names were? I want you to name your next child after this wonderful man. Zerubbabel. Everyone say it. Zerubbabel, who came from the print the the prince side of the family of the kings of Judah, he had royal blood. And then Joshua, everyone say Joshua, he was a priest. It pictures the ministry of Jesus, our priest and king. And they got that first temple built. Now in Zechariah four. In Revelation chapter 11, they run parallel the stories. We just read it. These two witnesses are seen as two what? Two olive trees. Why olive trees? Olive tree is one of the symbols of Israel. The olive oil would be harvested. I mean, a lot of people, they, were, they, they did this for a living. They had uh, olive tree farms. 
But that's where they would get the oil for the menorah. And so the fact that the father calls them olive trees and calls them lampstands is giving you a picture while they're doing what they're doing. They are providing light for the darkest time in earth's history. The earth will never get darker than at this moment. And there's two guys are anchored in Jerusalem telling people about God's mercy and his holiness. And God wants us to anchor ourselves and be light wherever we are. Light in our families, light in our neighborhood, light at work. Not lighting a candle and covering up under a basket. This verse from Second from 1 Thessalonians, say it with me please. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We don't belong to the night. We don't belong to darkness. We're light. Because Jesus is on the inside of us. Now, the identities of the two men are not given in the passage. But they move in signs and wonders. Like the great lawgiver, Moses. And like the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, Elijah, signs and wonders. Well, let me just give you some parallels here. Whoever tries to assault these two preachers in Jerusalem, they have the capacity to take their lives by fire. And it's the same way Elijah, wicked king, was sent to arrest him. He's sitting on a hill having a picnic lunch, and the captain of the 50s show up at the bottom of the hill. Are you Elijah? Yes, I am. The king says, you come down here. And Elijah says, that's kind of disrespectful. A fire, would you help him out? Boom. That happened twice. The third captain came out and said, by the way, we would love to have you join us. Do you have any time? He was so much more respectful and humble. And Elijah went with him. Number two, like Elijah, who prayed, commanded to pray, And said, may there be no rain in Israel for three and a half years. Also, these men have the ability in the spirit realm to cut off the water, the rain. We complain if we don't get rain for a month. Also, they have the ability to call down all kind of plagues on their tormentors but especially to turn their drinking water supply and make it impossible to drink, like Moses did. Oh, you want to worship the Nile? Let me show you what I can do with the Nile. Boom. Now, as we started the series on Revelation, we talked about the themes of pressure. God will bring pressure on the earth, Theme number two, to bring repentance. Three, to bring glory to Jesus. Pressure, is it a good thing or a bad thing? What do you think? How many think it's a good thing? It's pressure. How many think it's a bad thing? How many are afraid to raise your hand? <laughs> pressure is a good thing. 
and our country has gone through some some challenges. Is there a chance that the Heavenly Father might be speaking to our country, to the church, to the body of Christ? I think I think He's speaking pretty loud, and if we don't listen, uh, the pressure will get turned up. Now, point number E. When these two prophets, two witnesses, have finished their mission after three and a half years, and they have been indestructible until the three and a half years is up, if you're obeying Jesus, don't worry about cancer. Don't worry about dying in a plane crash. Don't worry about somebody taking your life. He's got you too. But when they have finished their assignment, the beast, this is the first time we see him in Revelation, and the beast is a man. He is a mortal, but he is empowered from the pits of hell by Satan. And the beast, here's what the scripture says. I never thought about these words. The beast makes war on them. The Greek word for war is polemos, and it means battle. This is not a couple of bad cops coming up and arresting them and taking them away in handcuffs. This is a three-year-long deal. The Antichrist can't kill them. He can't poison them. A sniper can't take them down. A whole group of tanks cannot hurt them. And the Antichrist is just at his wit's end because his constant preaching about Jesus and repentance is driving him and everybody nuts that don't love God. And I don't know how it plays out on the final day, but when the Father says, your assignment is over, the Antichrist and his troops move in because they want to stop the preaching. Stop it. I won't listen anymore. And they kill the two witnesses. And out of extreme contempt, their bodies are left to rot and decay in the hot Jerusalem sun. Now, your little pastor loves history, and it reminded me of the tyrant and thug, the Italian guy. Who is this? Anybody know? Benito Mussolini, a socialist who hoodwinked good Italians and ruined their country. You know what? He joined up with Adolf Hitler. What a sweet boy. His mama should have slapped him and spanked him and sent him home with no supper. 1945, April, when it looked like the Germans and the Italians were done, the people in the streets so hated Mussolini, they caught him, they dragged him out, he and his mistress, and they executed them. I will not show you the pictures, but they hated this man who ruined their country and killed their sons. He's a bad guy. 
These two are good gods, but people still hate them. And it's the city that heaven calls Sodom. Everyone say Sodom. Why Sodom? Because I'm guessing Jerusalem at this time has just unrestrained sinfulness and huge sexual perversion because there's a sexual twist to this. Most Israelis do not believe there is a God. They're secular people. They will figure it out. And it's also called Egypt. Everyone say Egypt. Now, why Egypt? Because apparently the chosen people turned to idolatry like the 1,400 different gods worshipped in the land of Egypt. Like what, what kind of gods? Well, they worshipped bulls. Remember the golden calf? They got that from Egypt. And they worshipped frogs. Bulls and frogs, not bull frogs. They worship cats. It's nice to have cats, but don't worship your cat. It's not very nice. They worship flies. Isn't that great? That's, that's an idol of a, of a god made in a fly's image. It's about 4,000 years old. And the ten plagues of Egypt saying, you know what? You want to worship frogs? How about if I give you 100 million of them? Enjoy them. You want to worship gnats? How about all the gnats you can put on a tomato sandwich? You worship the God, the sun God? How about if I cut all the lights off for three days and let you figure that out? God doesn't like competition. And also because people worshiped idols, they got into bondage. If you don't worship and adore the one true living God, let me tell you what will happen. You're going to get into bondage. What do you think God would call America today? What do you think? You think he might see America and say, that's a corrupt bunch of people there. Would he say, uh, oh, uh, that's Babylon. You do realize we create and export more pornography than any other country. We're so sweet, aren't we? We send that filth all over the world to corrupt people. How about this? Lukewarm? Yeah, the church in America, those guys primarily are not hot. They're not cold. They're lukewarm. How about this one? That's the country where their money says in God we trust. Yet they've killed 65 million innocent babies. So the constant preaching of these servants of God will so great on the nerves, not just people in Jerusalem, but people around the world, because this stuff will get telecast and spun and distorted. And the people that hate God, millions of people, once they are killed, <clears throat> their bodies will lie in the street where they were killed and abused people will throw stones. 
People will take out nine millimeters and shoot the corpses. People will kick them. People will spit on these bodies. People will laugh, laugh, laugh at these dead witnesses. And here's what's even crazy. These twisted folks will actually throw parties. Happy Dead Prophets Day. Come to my house for a barbecue. And they will exchange gifts. That is sick. And you think about global hatred. King David wrote in Psalm 2, Lord, why do the nations rage? Why do the kings of the earth take their stand against you and your son? But the corrupt partying, I don't know if it'll be at 3 o'clock, 11 o'clock in the morning, it will come to a screeching halt and the disco ball will stop and the band will drop their instruments crashing to the floor because the breath of God will come from heaven. Enter the nostrils of these people that have been dead for almost four days. Their hearts will kick in. Their lungs will expand. Their flesh will be healed. Their bones will be mended. And they will come back to life. Their battered and bruised bodies will be restored. And supernaturally, by one of the greatest miracles ever. Could you imagine if you were doing something horrible to the corpse and all of a sudden the corpse moved and the corpse stood up and the corpse said, no, thank you. And the formerly dead guys stood to their feet. Now, this is what the scripture says. And the scripture says this twice. This is important. Don't miss it. It could only happen in our generation. God made sure the people watching, everyone say watching, saw it. Saw it live. And then a voice was heard by every person within 10 miles, 100 miles. And the voice said, come up here now. And they left and went into the heavenly realm the same way their Savior did. From Jerusalem, where is this place? Can anybody tell me? It's in the Smoky Mountains. It's a joke. Where is it? Somebody, surely somebody knows where this is. Come on, you got a Bible, you read it, right? This is the Mount of Olives. That is where Jesus 
ascended after testifying 40 days between the erection and the day of ascension. His feet left the Mount of Olives into heaven to be with the Father at his right hand. And two angels were standing beside his 50 or 60 followers and said, why are you looking up? He's going to come back the same way he left in the very same spot. So they will ascend just like their Savior did. And all the world will see it. Now, this is fascinating. Think, think with me. These guys have been given the pagan world heaven for three and a half years. <laughs> and it's been a news story and not a news story and a news story. And there have been riots and there's been firebombing and there's been people that thought they could kill them and they ended up dead themselves. And CNN reports today, Fox News says today, cable news says today, these are the last photographs from yesterday evening. All the world will see this. And there'll be a hundred cameras just happen to be there when those guys take their breath and they sit up and people go, ah! And you, have you noticed that people have smartphones? Have you ever, do you know anybody has a smartphone? I've been in countries where people don't have water to drink and they sleep under a tree, but they got a smartphone. <laughs> and there's people filming this with their smartphone and all these cable television shows in five minutes are broadcasting it to nine billion people around the planet. You think God has the last love? And to put the exclamation point, worship team, would you come out to put the exclamation point An earthquake runs right through the heart of Israel, right through Jerusalem to shake the knucklehead who thinks he can box with God, the Antichrist. Don't ever be afraid of him. And this earthquake goes right through the heart of Jerusalem. And the scripture says, I don't say it, the scripture says 10% of the, of the city will go boom. And 7,000 people will lose their lives. Boom. This is what the scripture says. Great fear will rock the earth. People that were cursing and spitting and mocking and giving gifts, it ain't funny anymore. They are terrified of eternity. And here's the good news. <clears throat> A lot of people will go, I remember what my grandmother said to me that Jesus was the Savior and I need to get right with him. And a lot of people that are driving trucks will say, I got a gospel track a month ago and it's been sitting in the cab with me and I read that, but I need to act on that. And a lot of people that even heard Billy Graham preach and didn't get right will say, it's time for me to get right. 
And then if I was writing the scripture, I wouldn't put this down because I couldn't believe it. But the scripture closes by saying, and people started glorifying God. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. They started glorifying God. And here's the devil has egg all over his face. Every plan that he does always backfires on him. And this one backfires big time on him because the apple of his eye, the Jewish people will go, oh my, Jesus is the Messiah and he's my God. Now, why did this happen? It happened because two courageous men. You know what? It could have been a man and a woman. The Bible doesn't say. These prophets, these witnesses could be alive today. They could be age five and six. Or they could be in their 40s and they're ready to get on a plane and get to Jerusalem <clears throat> by tomorrow morning. But the courage of these two men, think, they endured assassination attempts, poisoning, artillery rounds, people trying to kill them as they slept, and nothing worked. And they got up the next day, put on the sackcloth, and went to the square again and said, God loves you, and he sent his son to die for you. And that's the greatest thing. When are you going to submit? When are you going to repent? Paul, a murderous man, wrote in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to all who would simply believe. Because the Jewish people got the first shot. Then the rest of us Gentiles came in. These guys completed their mission there's one thing I fear more than anything else and I don't don't fear much I fear God here's what I'm concerned about for my life I want to complete my mission whatever that is I want to do what God wants me to do I don't have to be known don't have to be have numbers don't have to write books I just want to do what the Lord wants me to do. Are you the same way? Do you know what he's asking you to do? Are you on it? Have you left your old world of darkness and you're no longer playing with sin and rebellion, witchcraft, drunkenness, pornography? You're not messing with somebody else's wife or husband. Have you stopped all that? And are you surrendered to the Lord's plan? I'm telling you, the kingdom needs you. And the Lord loves you right where you are. And he will help you. If you would take the communion elements. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've been a backslider. You need to come home. You need to serve him. Why don't you just pray this before we take the Lord's table? Why don't you 
Say with me, Lord Jesus, I've been such a rebel, such a knucklehead, such an idiot, and I've done so many wrong things. Come into my heart today and be my Savior, my Lord. Cleanse me of all my sin. Give me a home in heaven and make me your child. Because today, I give you my life forever. In Jesus' name, if you prayed that prayer, I want you to tell somebody at the end of the service what you've done and let us help you. But let's take the Lord's table together. If you're not walking in fellowship with the Lord, why don't you just wait till you repent of your sin and get that right. But if you're walking with the Lord now, take the bread in your hand. Lord, we're all broken people. We've all made mistakes. But we thank you that your life and your body was broken and abused for us so we could find healing. Take and eat. And likewise, take the cup, peel the top back. The blood of his promise of forgiveness from every single sin. Lord, forgive us and cleanse us. And Lord, we're on task to serve you. Take and drink. And during the last time of worship, the altar is open. Please come, humble yourself before the Lord, ask for his grace. There's people that will pray with you on the wings. Would you all stand as we worship? the world and hating the dark 
dry bones living again, singing as one.
Father, I thank you that everyone in this room is loved dearly by you, and you always want to help us, and you're so merciful. Lord, give us great hope. May we hear your voice, and may we obey you. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Serve him well. Pick up your children, and there's people that will pray with you. Thank you for joining us online at Church of the Savior today. We hope you were encouraged to grow in your walk with Jesus. If you made a decision to follow Jesus for the first time today, would you please reach out to us? We would love to help you take your next step. Please visit our website for information on upcoming events and how you can connect with the COS family. There's also a prayer request form where you can let us know how we can pray for you. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you next week.